Why don't you all stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to read from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your, on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. We're also going to read from Mark 12, 28 to 31. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most, most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, I, uh, we are going to start a, a pre-summer series today called Pathways to Joy. I like that title. I'd like to think of life as being more joyful than less. And we're going to talk about practices that lead to a greater experience of, of life and joy. And in honor of Father's Day, I want to start by looking at a unique uh, father-son relationship. I, I've come across a few of these over the years. This is one of my favorites. Uh, the, the father's name is Dick, and his son is, is uh, Rick. And that's got to be a confusing household, but uh, they've got interesting challenges. And we've shown this before, but I, I thought it would be a helpful thing to remind us of what a, what a dad can look like. So let's watch this story.
Isn't that cool? Yeah, I want to say I, I love being a dad. It's the best job I have uh, is being a dad. And, and uh, I, I think we have great dads in our church, actually. I'm really proud of the men that, that are fathers that are in our community. But I'm not a dad like that. <laughs> and I don't intend to ever run a marathon for my children. They, they know this of me. I've made that pretty clear. But I mean, what a picture of a great dad, an inspiration of somebody who, who uh, um, does something so that his son can experience life and joy. And my thought was, as I remembered this story, was how much more, how much more does the Heavenly Father love us? That's a little bit of a, a picture, I think, of how our Heavenly Father loves you and I and wants to father us. What a great dad we got. And today I want to talk to, about a practice, not so much about how the Heavenly Father loves us, but how we respond to that love by, by loving God and how that practice of loving God leads to a life of meaning and, and joy uh, that we can experience. This is the first great commandment, something that Jesus and, and Moses both agreed that this command is basically the, the whole foundation of our Christian faith. And as we look at this, this great commandment that, that Margaret read earlier, we, I'd like to start by reminding you how our Jewish friends view this commandment. In Judaism, this is called the Shema Israel. The word Shema means to hear. So it means, uh, hear, O Israel. It's an opening statement in a passage of Scripture where Moses is summarizing the laws that he's given to the people. And Shema Israel isn't just two verses, but it includes the verses that kind of follow. And it's actually three different passages, two in Deuteronomy and one in the book of Numbers. But really the first two verses are the most important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then everything else after that is kind of commentary on those words. Now the first phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Just a, a side note there, you'll see that the, the word Lord is in capitals. See, it, it, this, this word Lord only occurs in the Old Testament, and when you see it on all caps, it signifies that the Hebrew word behind that is the divine name of God, the sort of the personal, private name of God. It's the name Yahweh or Jehovah. So Lord in capitals is the name Yahweh, and anytime you see the word Lord, not in capitals, it's using a different word for God. So why is that important? Well, the holy name for God, Yahweh, is, is the name God gave Moses in the wilderness when he told Moses to go to Egypt and speak to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go free. And, and Moses says, I'll go, but what is your name? Who shall I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them Yahweh sent me. Yahweh is a word that simply means I am that I am. You probably, some of you knew that. Well, that's kind of a strange name. What does that mean? And in essence, God is saying, I am life itself. I'm the source of, of existence itself. Everything else that, that exists is contingent, is dependent on me, on who I am. This is, this is kind of a, a fundamental claim that, that God is, is making. In essence, he's saying that everything else, even er, anything else claiming to be God, is not God. It, it is reliant on me. All that emerges, all life emerges from me. I am that I am. Now, this affirmation that, that God alone, Yahweh alone is God, is Israel's God, it's, it's followed by a command of how we're to respond or live in response to that. Once you, once you know there is a God and that God is the source of all, all existence, of all being, 
then the response we were meant to have is found in the next verse in Deuteronomy 6, 5, where it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So here we find two statements. The first being, the first idea of there being only one God. That's pretty clear, that there's a God and and there's only one. And he's the source of everything. And then our response to that is, is to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Pretty clear. Now, now these two verses, along with the verses that follow, are, are so important to the people of Israel that a faithful Jew, even to this day, will, will, will say these words every morning when they wake up, and they'll say them as the last thing they say when they go to bed at night. Um, in Scripture, they're, they're told they're meant to remember these things as they go out into their day and to say them again as they come back into their home. And so often Jews will place a, a small scroll with these words written on them, and they'll place them in what's called a mezuzah. And it's, it's something that's placed on the, the mantle of people's doors. In fact, when we were in Israel, we saw these on almost every door in every home. And friends of ours that, that joined us on that trip, that came back to Coquitlam, they actually brought one back with them, and they now have it on their door, even though they're not Jewish. That's how important these, these scriptures are. I mean, you, you walk out of the door, you're meant to, to touch that mezuzah on the way out and on the way in, and, and, and remember that God alone is God. He's the Lord. I'm not God. Nothing else is God. The Lord is God, the Lord alone, and I'm to love Him with all that I am. And you walk out and you touch it and you remember, you know, this is who I am. This is, this is my mission. This is what my life is all about. The Lord is Yahweh. The Lord is God. And I'm to love him with my, all my heart and all my soul and all my strength. And, and this is why I'm here. So, so in the morning when you, when you wake up, in the morning when you leave, in the morning when you come back, and at night before you go to bed, you're saying these words. And it's fascinating to me. One of the dreams of a faithful Jew is to recite these words with their dying breath, that they would have enough strength on their deathbed to be able to say, Yahweh is God and God alone, and I will love him with all that I am, and then they're ready to go and meet their maker. So this was Moses. But then Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? You guys know the answer. He he responds with, Hear, O Israel. (laughs) The Lord is God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. He, he comes up, Why did he reply so instantly with those words? Well, because this was Israel's faith. It was the foundation of their faith. For, since Moses, they'd been reciting this. And, and so Jesus would have gotten up every morning and he would have said this. And as he walked out the door, he, he again would remember that the Lord was his God. And he would do, say it again when he came back into the house. And he'd say it again before he went to bed. He was a faithful Jew, and so these words would have shaped and formed who Jesus was and how he saw the world around him. So the thing is, if they were important for Jesus, and if they're the most important commandment, and Moses says we're to take these very seriously, through them both, God is is speaking to us. Life is found here, and and we need to take these things very, very seriously. This is the, the, the single most important lesson for you to know in all of life, according to the scriptures. Um, by the way, Moses goes on to say, he says, uh, bind them on your head. And, and it really means bind these words, imprint them kind of on your mind. And he says, bind them on your arm so that really by your strength, you would live these words out. 
And, and many Jews literally have practiced this by, by placing these little black boxes and they'll place them on their heads or they place them on their arms. And if you, it, when I was in Jerusalem at the Western Wall and, and there'd be people praying there and they'd have these boxes and inside these little black boxes called phylacteries, they would have the words of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And of course, the first part of that, where the Lord is God, the Lord alone. So from our Jewish friends, we would remember these lessons to take so very seriously these words that we would bind them in our hearts and bind them in our minds. And that every day, that when we wake up, these might be the first words on our thoughts. And when we go to bed, they'd be the last words we think about and say. And that every day when we walk out and when we return, we remember these things. And uh, I want to take some time this morning to focus on these, these two parts of the Shema. And I want to, first of all, focus on that first central claim that there is a God, that the Lord is God. So let's turn to that uh, moment, that God is the source of everything that exists. I want to begin by asking the question, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in God? And it used to be self-evident to most people that there, there was a God, but it seems that there are an increasing number of people who say, I don't know. Maybe science kind of explains everything, uh, and I don't need to believe there's a, there's a God anymore. And, and of course, all of us uh, have doubts about God sometimes. You can't help it. There's uh, all kinds of reasons. Uh, there's our life experience. We were at a, a, a party last night, invited to a, a housewarming, and uh, I was in a room full of strangers, and I got talking to this fellow, retired German background and uh, he found out I was a minister. He says, well, actually, I, I, I guess I consider myself an atheist. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, when I was six years old, I, I, I lived, I was born in 1939, and I lived in Berlin. And in 1945, just two weeks before the end of the war, my dad, who was working in a factory, he wasn't a soldier, was conscripted, conscripted into the civil service, really, and civil defense of, of the city of Berlin. And and they, they put a gun in his hands, and, and uh, two weeks before the end of the war, he was shot and killed. And because of that event, his mother said, I, I'm done with God. If, if he would let something like this happen, I'm not going to believe in him anymore. And so this man says, I suppose I had really no other choice than to be an atheist. Um, so, so things happen like that, and, and we have doubts. It's normal to have doubts and, and questions, and sometimes you kind of wonder, is this all just wishful thinking? And we kind of just made this up so that we would feel better about our lives? Or is there really actually a God who is the source of everything? And the other question you'd have to ask is, why are the reasons, or what are the reasons you'd give to a friend who is asking you, why do you believe in God? What would you say? I, I've, I've thought about this. I, I probably have about 20 plus reasons as to why I believe in God. Um, probably a lot of them center around who Jesus is, his, his life and his death and his, and his resurrection. But but if someone was to ask me, uh, you know, why do you believe in God? There'd probably be three, three reasons at least that I would probably share with them. And th- these, are, these are some of them. And I know I can't go into this in great depth, but I'll just touch on it this morning. If someone was to ask sincerely, why do you believe in God? This is what I might say. First of all, I, I think I'd say I, I believe in God in part because of the beauty and, and the order and the majesty of creation. Um, the creation itself paints a picture for me of, of something more, of, of something greater, of some intelligence behind it. And when you see, I mean, I mean you see nature, 
or you see creation, or you, you look through a telescope, or you see the pictures that the, the Hubble Space Telescope has taken, and, and you're going, these galaxies that we can see that are so majestic, and they're thousands and thousands of light years away, and I go, I, I, I just have a difficult time believing that that all happened by accident. Even, even when you look at the simplest of, of life forms, and you're going, how did that happen? And I, or, or when you study science, or mathematics, or, or physics, and you have these really bright minds who wrestle trying to, to capture in formulas the laws that govern our universe. And, and I say, is it really possible that all of that came out of nothing? It, it ordered itself in these ways without any, any help. And it, it's hard for me to imagine that. And back to those simplest life forms. I mean, you, you look at the DNA, the, the structure of the simplest life forms, and you see just their immense complexity. I mean... It's unbelievable. And you ask, did it really organize itself out of chaos? And, and, and I know some of us get uh, pretty excited when, when, especially when we're people of faith and, and we hear the, the term evolution. But, but even if there are evolutionary principles at work, which, which the evidence seems to suggest in some way, shape, or form they're at work in our world, behind all of that still, I see this intelligence and this design and this artistry and, and this creativity. I find beauty in, in, in the order I see that there, there are questions that gnaw at me when I try to think of this as coming from nothing. Just uh, one simple question. If you grew up in, in Canada, uh, you probably had this happen. You were probably served in your childhood uh, alphabet soup. Anyone confess to being served alphabet soup? Or maybe today, the alphabet seems to be the uh, replacement of that today. Um, I fed my boys that when my wife was not home. Um, but, but maybe your mom or your dad served you a bowl of alphabet soup, and you can imagine them placing the bowl before you, and what, what do you, what, you look into your bowl, and this is what you see. And you're like going, wow, thanks, mom or dad, for, you know, for ordering the alphabet like that for me. And, and your mom or dad say, well, actually, we didn't do it. The, the, it just came out of the can into the bowl like that. And you're like, yeah, right, that's impossible. And you think about it, I think about how many billions of years and, and the trillions of cans of alphabet soup you would have to, to open before you might get one that came out and looked like that. I mean, theoretically, I suppose it's possible, but it seems rather improbable that you'd ever get one that would come out like that. And this is just 26 letters of the alphabet in, in an alphabet soup. <laughs> we look at genetic combinations that make up the the simplest of life forms on our planet and it makes that stuff look like child's play i mean it's a silly illustration but you can you can look at the world and you go that didn't happen by itself it wasn't random and and so people of faith looking out of the world would say even even with all the wonderful scientific knowledge that we have it still seems to require some intelligence behind it and so it's interesting to me. Sometimes we have this, uh, this great divide between science and faith. Uh, and yet theologians actually talk about the two books of Scripture that we have. One being the Bible, the Word of God, and the other being creation, which also points to God and speaks of His glory. And so it's no surprise to me that, that uh, more and more scientists are actually people of faith. In fact, historically, scientists were all people of faith. I mean, the very practice of scientific method and research comes out of the Christian worldview specifically. And, and I think of uh, George Lamatra. He was the, the Catholic priest who in the 1930s proposed the Big Bang Theory. 
and he was a physicist, and he was curious about our, our universe, and he curious about how it was formed. And when he talked about this theory and, and how it, it went on to be adopted, really, as the primary way of explaining um, the, the beginnings of the universe. But, but Lamont, what's interesting about him was Lamontre never felt it diminished his faith. Knowing an explanation of, of a process didn't take away from the mystery of the God who was bef- behind it or who, who launched it. His, his scientific inquiry act, actually led him to a deeper faith in God. I think that's the coolest thing. Didn't lead him to abandon his faith in God. And so, at least the universe around us seems to make more sense to me when I, I think of it as reflecting some of the Maker's glory. I think, I think you and I reflect the maker's glory as well. Another reason I, I believe is, uh, author, as author uh, Douglas Adams put it, he called the questions of life, the universe, and everything, which he proposed was, the answer to was 42. But uh, it's really the profound quest that, that human beings have for answers. As, as philosopher Paul Tillich put it, the, the questions inherent, inherent in our existence. And there are questions we, you know, we all ask, and human beings have all asked throughout history, existential questions like, where do I find, you know, unconditional love? Am, am I really all alone? Where do I find meaning and, and purpose? That was one of my nagging questions when I was a teenager, is what is the purpose of my life? Uh, you know, how do I deal with, with tragedy, with sickness? Uh, where do I find forgiveness and a second chance when I've blown it? Where do I find peace in, in the face of despair? Where do I find hope in the face of death? These are all questions uh, that we wrestle with. We all do. But it's interesting that about all these questions is they kind of point to, to one thing. They point to a God who is the answer to these questions. I mean, the very fact that, that you are a question wrestler, that you're wrestling with these things, it, it suggests that there's an answer to the questions. And the answer is the one who created you, the I am who is the source of everything. And all these things you're searching for ultimately is the source for that, the the answer for that. He is the answer for that. I'm reminded of of 1982 when when Premier Brezhnev died. You remember him? He was the the leader of the Soviet Union at that time. And and he was really the premier of the Soviet Union through my entire childhood. You heard Brezhnev's name a lot. And when he died, dignitaries came to his funeral from all over the world one of which was the American vice president, who at the time was George Bush Sr. And, and he writes about having been given a seat pretty close to the, the casket where Brezhnev laid. And, and he, he says he was stunned by something that happened in, in, during the, the service. Uh, when it was time to, to lower the, the casket lid over Brezhnev, Mrs. Brezhnev got up and she actually held the casket open and she did something that he says that just stunned me. She made the sign of the cross over her husband. This was, this was the leader uh, at that time of the most powerful atheist state in the world, and yet his wife sensed in, in that moment that the only hope that she had was in the man who had borne the cross. He's the answer to the questions that are implied in our existence. Lastly, I'd say my own experience is the reason I believe. Um, I became a follower of Christ at about the age of 17. And when I did that, uh, things began to change for me. I began to sense God's presence in my life. Um, there were times where I heard him speak, not audibly, but, but, but in my heart, I heard things so loud and clear that I came to trust that, that God actually 
communicates to people at, at different times. And, and I, I've, I've seen that he's <laughs> helped me choose to do things that I never would have done otherwise on my own. I've seen that he's made me a better husband and a better father and a better human being. Um, I wake up every morning and he's the first person I talk to when I wake up and he's the last person I speak to when I go to bed. Um, I sense his presence with me. Not every day, but, but often I, I sense that he is with me and alongside me. And, and, and you know, and when I've sought him in concentrated prayer, uh, actually I felt more alive in those moments and, and have sensed that, that I'm more human in those times. And, 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 and to be honest, all the very best of experiences of my life all kind of point back to that one event where I decided to put my trust in God. Now, I've got to say, um, just uh, let me be the voice of the contrarian here. There, there are those that become Christians and seem to become worse <laughs> and seem to become more nasty and, and more judgmental. Like you might call them greedy, grumpy Christians. But I don't think those people have really ever understood the gospel because the gospel is meant to lead you and to change you to become more gracious, more loving, more, more generous, more forgiving, more kind. And while I'm not the person I, I want to be, I'm more of the person I would have been if I hadn't put my trust in God and become a follower of Him. And, and, I, and I've been thinking about this. I, I thought of it this way. Is, is if I get to the end of my life and, and all these kind of experiences and beliefs I've had are somehow delusions, psychological uh, you know, thoughts, or somehow I, I misread my, my experiences and science really explains away the need for God and I get to the end of my life and I find out that there really isn't a God after all. I guess I won't know because I'll be dead in that moment. <laughs> but, but if I, that were the case, I, I prefer the life I lived believing in God and the person I've become believing in God to the life I, I would have lived without believing in God. Um, I, I believe I've had more joy and more hope and more meaning and, and more life because of my trust in Him. So I can't prove to anyone who's not who's an atheist, I can't prove to them that there's a God, and, and I don't know that I can necessarily convince them that there's a God. What I can say is that there is a, a point in, in times, uh, you, you make a choice somewhere along the way, and the choice is to trust. And this is the central claim Jesus and Moses in the Great Commandment and in, in the Shema Israel. There is a God. He knows your name. He's your God, and you belong to him, and he loves you more than you could possibly ever know or imagine. And life is found in him. So the question really this morning is, how do you respond to that knowledge? What do you do with that? What are we supposed to do? Is it enough just to believe in God? Actually, it's not just enough to believe in God. In fact, James, uh, Jesus' little brother, put it this way, says, even the demons believe in God, and, and they shudder. It's obviously not enough just to believe in God. Somehow God is looking for something more than that. God is looking for you to love God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest of all commandments, your response to God. And here's the thing, when you live into this, you find that the things that Scripture promises you come, come out in your life, joy and, and meaning and peace and life. So I want to ponder this as we prepare to this. What, what does it mean and, and how do we love this invisible God? First, I want to remind you just uh, that there are two words in, in these scriptures, two different words for love, one in the Old Testament and, and one in the New Testament in these passages of scripture. Now, Jesus 
his uh, native tongue was Hebrew or Aramaic, but his words were taken and they were put into Greek, kind of the language of the greater culture he lived in. And, and the word used for loving God in, in that passage in, in Mark 12 was agape love. You, you might have heard of that term, agape. And uh, we're meant to demonstrate agape love to God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And agape love is, is kind of interesting because it's not so much about the emotions, but it's about your actions. So as uh, we talked uh, about a few weeks ago, you're meant to agape love your enemies. That doesn't mean that you have kind of warm fuzzies for them. What it does mean, it means you do kind things for them. You, you bless them. You do things in their, their best interest, even if you don't feel like it. That's what agape love looks like. And, and so when it comes to agape love towards God, it means I'm seeking to bless God and, and, and honor God and live for God and do what, what I could do to please God, what would touch God, even if I don't feel like it. It's, it's about my action, not about the feelings of, of my heart it, it, when we think about agape. And, and, and so when I think about this, I think about the everyday kind of things you, you do because you are a follower of Christ. When you walk out the door and you remember that, that this is God, He is Yahweh, it's my mission to love God. And so, that, so you tip differently when you, you're in a restaurant you, you treat people differently in your workplace. You treat your work itself differently because you love God. You love your neighbors as you love yourself. You treat your enemies differently. You make different kinds of decisions because in everything in your life, you're seeking to love God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. It really applies to every kind of decision you're going to make. Decisions about the, the kind of house you're going to live in, the kind of neighborhood you're going to live in, the kind of car you're going to drive, that how you, you spend your money, all those kind of things, what you do with your time. I think of this love being demonstrated by a family in our church who uh, they moved into a neighborhood and they didn't really know when they moved in, but their, their neighborhood has been labeled as one of the, the socioeconomically deprived neighborhoods in our community. And, and it's not that they're poor. It's not a poor neighborhood. But that, that neighborhood, studies have been done that have shown that there are greater families and children at risk in that neighborhood for whatever reason, number of factors. And so this, this family had been burdened and they're pray, they've been praying for their neighborhood and the people that live there. And what they, they've done out of, out of response to that, they begin to um, pray for their neighbors, of course, but they begin to love on them. And, and how that looks like for them is they've been throwing barbecues about every other week on a Sunday night, they invite a bunch of neighbors over for, for like burgers and hot dogs and those kind of things. And they said, it's easy to do. We don't try to make a big splash of it. But guess what? He says, we invite the neighbors and they come. They show up. And if, turns out you put out food and people arrive. It's one of those great things. You can learn, try this, folks, try this. And, and so they found interesting. They just try to be really casual. They, it's, they, they don't have any agenda when they come. That It's not like, Okay, now that we have you here, I'd like to share my testimony. That's not exactly what happens during their time. When, when those friends show up, they just love on them. And it's interesting, without even trying, the conversations often lead towards their faith and what has made them so loving. But that's not been their agenda. Their agenda has been to love their neighbor as a, as a demonstration, as a practical demonstration of their love for God. Another example in our church, I, I think of a, a woman who's been uh, in hospital, for, uh, she's kind of really shut in for quite a number of weeks, and it's interesting, uh, those, there's been numbers and numbers of hillside uh, individuals that have gone and, and visited her in the hospital and tried to 
encourage and, and bring hope to her. But, but it's interesting, three of them stand out. And it, one, of, one of which is a, an, a, a senior citizen who's just had hip surgery. And uh, I can imagine her with her cane just kind of making her way, uh, hobbling, trying to find the room at the hospital and, and uh, to great effort and trouble going and visiting her in the hospital. The other one was, is, a, is an individual who's themselves suffering from mental illness, from depression, and is off work on disability. But in their time that they have, they've been going to visit this person in the hospital. And one of the others is, is somebody who's battling cancer and is going through chemotherapy right now, going to kind of the, uh, the most difficult season of their lives. And in their spare time, they're going to the hospital to visit this other person who's shut in. Why would they do that? It's an expression of God's love. It's, it's them taking their hours and their days and seeking to, to love God and love their neighbor through those very practical ways that they live. Well, last thing. In the Hebrew Old Testament, you find there's a different word for love than the agape word in the New Testament. The, the, the word is ehav. Uh, it, it's used to describe a love uh, people have who are intimate with each other. It's the kind of love a, a parent has for a child. It's the love uh, spouses or lovers have for each other. Um, it, it's to have a affectionate feelings for another person. It's kind of a relational orientated love. So, it, so at first in the old in the New Testament, we have this kind of this doing picture of love. Uh, in the Old Testament, here in Deuteronomy, we have this this more relational kind of love that's portrayed in Deuteronomy six. And, and I want you to think about this for a moment. God loves you with, with more more than you can imagine or than you can believe. But part of his desire is that you would love him back. That that you might have a a relationship with God, a a loving relationship with him. And and what's interesting is that Christians throughout the years have often been divided into two groups. There have been those who who really have been serious about about doing the doing kind of love, who are doing justice and loving kindness and, and kind of caring for the poor and the marginalized and so forth. And then there were all these other Christians who are very centrally concerned with having a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But the truth is, both of those are important. I, I, you can't, it's not one or the other. You're meant to have, have both. Uh, you're, you're both meant to, to love justice and to do goodness and to practice kindness, and you're meant to have a, a relationship with God that transforms your life. And you ask, how do you do that? How do you, how do you have a relationship with an invisible God? Turns out you, you have a relationship with an invisible God the same way you have a relationship with visible people. My, my family, I, I left I, our exodus as a family. We, we moved to British Columbia about 22 years ago. And so my, my parents and my siblings all live in Ontario. And, and uh, I uh, found that I, I don't get to see them very often because we're like 3,000 miles apart and so on. But, but I make a point to, to call and to text and, and to keep in touch regularly with, with my mom. Um, I talk to her every, you know, every week, sometimes twice. I called her this morning. I didn't I woke up and wanted to call my dad, and my dad's in heaven, so I decided to call my mom was a good number two. So I called my mom instead. That was, a, that was enough for me. But, but often it serves to remind her, and it reminds me that we're there for each other, and that, that, that we, we love you. And I think she just loves to know that I've been thinking of her. When I send her a letter or a card, she mentions it the next time I'm on the phone with her. She thinks how great that is. And I always end my, my, my calls with the same words. I love you, Mom. I love you, Phil. I love you, Steve. I love you, Joanne. And I always hear that reply back. They say, I love you too. And uh, when it comes to birthdays and, and special occasions, we send notes and cards and sometimes packages 
and it's really cool to get those back to you know you know there's nothing better than a package to open and but there are ways of of staying in love with people who are far away those of you who are have friends and family overseas skype has been a, just a real gift to you hasn't it but there are ways to do that there's ways to stay connected but here's the thing if i never took the time to call or write or or get in touch with my family i i think we'd just gradually kind of drift apart you're like out of sight out of mind right which is what happens in our loving relationship with god right we you see you're never out of sight to him you really are never out of his sight but for you you've got to be intentional about focusing on him every single day with angel uh we connect relationally every day i mean we live in the same same house and i talk and she listens and and she talks and I sometimes listen. Um, we send emails and, and uh, you know, we, we stay in touch when, when we're apart at work and so forth. We, we kind of text, but it, to, to Angel, texting is kind of like a foreign language still. So I'm teaching her gradually. It's more, mostly one. I send off notes into space, it seems, and occasionally get a little bit of feedback. Um, we sacrifice for each other. We do try to do kind things for one another. I regularly try to bring gifts and, and, and flowers home and, and bless her those ways. And probably most importantly is about once a week, we, we have a date night. We have a date time and we go out on a date and we kind of celebrate our close in those times. We enjoy just spending kind of a concentrated amount of time together. Friday, last Friday, I, I have Fridays off and I, uh, we went out for Thai food at lunch and, and then went for a walk afterwards. And it's amazing how that just was such an encouragement to our relationship. Let me say this, folks. This is, this is date night today between you and God. I mean, we do this kind of once in seven days where, where we gather to worship and, and we concentrate on our relationship with God and, and those practices that we try to, to breathe into our day. Sometimes for some of you, it may be literally having your watch sense, uh, set four times a day to alarm so that you can remember God and you can say, the Lord, he is God and I will love him with all that i am um so anyway just wrapping things up just capturing what this this looks like i said uh we moved recently and uh when we were moving we began looking through our filing cabinets and i was just dreading moving we had uh, have accumulated so much stuff and so many papers we had four uh two large filing cabinets four drawers each filled with paper and i'm looking and we have like stuff from the 1980s we have like bank statements from 1992 and, and, and insurance, insurance contracts for cars we no longer own. And I'm like going, this stuff has got to go. And we began taking stuff to the shredder. And I was ruthless. I was saying, no, we're getting rid of that. We're getting rid of that. And it was, it was like a, the mantra. And yet there were a couple boxes that were sacred. You know what they were? They were the letters and cards given to us by our sons. We, we kept those. Those were sacred. We weren't going to get rid of those. Um, let me show you a couple. I... I I've, lo- I've actually misplaced. We're, we're not entirely unpacked yet, but I, so I can only find one box. So these were kind of the number twos. These were like uh, second grade cards that I got from my sons. The, the better ones, I'm sure, are elsewhere. Um, the, this, uh, this happy birthday card from one of my sons. Um, this one was really uh, very beautiful in the front, huh? Happy birthday, day, 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 day. Dad, and there's all these things like you're a superhero, woohoo, all this kind of stuff over here. You're, this was when I was turned 45, which is like yesterday. Um, it says, to Derwin, Dad, 
I love you so much, and I thank you for all the love you give me. You are the best dad anyone could ask for. I've had such great memories with you and of you, and I'm sure we will have plenty more. I hope you have a blessed year to come. Lots of love, Noah. Isn't that great? And then, of course, there's the requisite uh, tic-tac-toe on the back that they always say. It was like interactive cards we were always given. Um, This one... This one, uh, you know, not, this one, happy birthday, Father. And, and, and one time they made a mistake, and on Father's Day, I've, I've told you about this, it was happy Fatter's Day. They spelt it wrong. Happy Fatter's Day. And here's, I didn't say fatter, which is so sweet. And it says all kinds of stuff. And this is from my, my son Caleb. And, and at the end it says, this award is, get, there's a little award on the back. Uh, no tic-tac-toe, but award ceremony here. Uh, this award is given to Derwin Gray for being the most smartest uh, this next one is really captures me. The most athletic, <laughs> lovable, trustworthy, handsomest, and best dad in the whole universe. Love, Caleb. I think that's great. And then there's this one. This one was just um, really, I don't know what was, he was thinking. It's, it's actually uh, not so very impressive. Lots, lots of colors, mind you. And, and uh, I, 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 you know, I, there, was the, there was tic-tac-toe on there. But at the end again, very simply, to dad, love, Caleb. I love you, dad. There's, there's a, a little picture of me and a little picture of him and a big heart in the middle. And uh, I read those cards and, and I can't help but kind of like get choked up a little bit. I, lo- I love my sons. I, you see, I love my kids actually more than life itself. I would uh, gladly give my life for my kids. I, I wouldn't run a marathon for them. Um, I want, I, I'd die for them, but I just want it to be quick and over with quickly. None of this 27 miles of, you know, pain. But... Uh, I want them to have good things, and I, I, I pray for them every day, and I think about them all the time. I, I love them like crazy. And you know, I, I, I save these things because every once in a while, they stop, and they, they respond and say, I love you too, Dad. I love you too. Uh, even now when my sons hug me, or, or they write me a card, or speak the words, I love you, Dad, I savor that. It means the world. And I think that that is how God is looking for from us, is, is hoping for from his children. He's given you everything he's he's given you 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 hope and peace and life and mercy and and second and third and tenth chances he loves you and he's inviting you to love him in return so hear O israel the lord is our god the lord alone love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength and when you find and when you do you find joy and meaning and life. Why don't you bow your heads with me and, and let's, uh, let's pray. Let's do this with God right now. And I'd like you to say in, in your own words this morning, God, thank you for everything you've done for me. And maybe if you've never trusted God ever before and you, you're ready to do that, maybe you might say this morning, I, I choose to trust you, God. I believe in you. I want to to love you. Why don't you express that to God? Lord, I love you and I offer you my whole life. Just take a few moments to let you do that.